Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We are Chris Newmarkerless this week. Chris has taken some time off, but we've got lots of great folks in the podcast to make up for that huge absence. First, happy to have Michael Matson of Needham. He's a medtech analyst covering the sector for a long time. He's been with Needham for nine years. We've talked a bit about uh, Michael's recent note that uh, J&J could be a buyer of Boston Scientific. So uh, I know we, we covered that in a previous episode, but in this case, we went straight to the source. Uh, Mike will talk about how he sees the situation, what the opportunities might be for J&J, although he says he doesn't cover the company, but uh, we'll talk about their needs, why a, a deal with a company like Boston might fit and what other deals might not fit. We also talked about ResMed, about supply chain, about elective surgery, about Medtronic and the difficulties they've had lately. So uh, great conversation with Mike Matson. He kind of brought his own newsmakers to the podcast. Then we're going to focus the rest of the podcast on the recent financing by Moon Surgical. It raised more than $31 million for a Series A. First, I'll speak with Anne Azdua. She is the CEO of Moon Surgical. We'll talk about her path into Medtech, of course, but also why Moon Surgical caught her eye and uh, why it really presents a different opportunity for uh, ambulatory surgery centers and for hospitals to benefit from robotics. And later on, I'm very thrilled to uh, have talked with Steve Osterley. Steve Osterley, for years, he was Senior Vice President of Medicine and Technology at Medtronic. And in that role, he was often at uh, conferences talking about the integration of medtech and technology. Uh, he was really at the forefront of these conversations. Now, of course, we're seeing uh, technology and medtech so intertwined, it's sometimes hard to separate the two. So I talked with Steve about that, about how things have changed. He's no longer with Medtronic, but he, he works for several companies. We'll talk about several companies in an advisory capacity. capacity. We'll talk about what he's up to, uh, and specifically, we'll talk about his work with Cathay Capital, which was an investor in taking it back to Moon Surgical. So I uh, came to understand why Steve found Moon Surgical uh, intriguing. And uh, we'll talk about who else found it intriguing, a very big name in surgical robotics, probably the biggest name in surgical robotics. So uh, great conversation with Steve. We're very happy to catch up with him. Before we begin, I wanted to uh, clear away a little housekeeping. This episode of Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by KNF. We'll hear from KNF throughout the podcast. I also wanted to let you know that we'll be uh, hosting a Device Talks Tuesdays this Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, like we always do. It is hosted by or sponsored by Pulse Technologies, and the title is Hierarchical Surface Restructuring for Next Generation Neural Interfacing Electrodes and Microelectrode Arrays. So, neurobioelectric medicine, all of it is going to be huge. This webinar by Pulse Technologies will give you insights on what's coming up in the space. So if you're in the neurospace, you should be registering for this meeting. So go to devicetalks.com to do that. And while you're there, uh, once again, registration is open for Device Talks West. We'll be in Santa Clara on October 19th and 20th. We have uh, great keynotes lined up, including Brett Wall from Medtronic. We'll be talking about bioelectric medicine. We'll have Gary Guthart from Intuitive. Of course, we'll be talking about surgical robotics and many, many more. So go to devicetalks.com. Register first for our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. We've got a great lineup coming up. 
And then, of course, sign up to attend Device Talks West. All right, without any further delay, I once again want to thank KNF for sponsoring this podcast. And uh, let's get this podcast going. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Mike Masson, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity. You've got a, a lot to talk about. You're, uh, you've are you been busy, busy, busy. Uh, I, at the top of the list, I, I kind of want to uh, delve a little deeper. We've talked about the last two podcasts. That you had a note speaking to Johnson & Johnson's uh, future and what it may need to do to spark growth. And that's my turn, my verbiage, not yours. But uh, one of the items you, you mentioned, and it's getting a lot of play on mass device, is just a, a, a speculation or a suggestion or a thought. Or observation that J and J could look to uh, acquire Boston Scientific. Been trying to sort of delve into the the genesis of, of that story. I know it's, or at least that possibility. I know it's been kicked around since Mike Mahoney went from J and J to Boston Scientific. But first question, it's a long question. What is your take on J and J? Does it need to acquire something that large at some point in the near future? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I could talk a little bit about it. I, you know, I have to start out by saying I don't happen to cover J&J officially. I do cover Boston Scientific. We actually don't have an analyst at Needham, a company that covers uh, J&J. But, you know, generally they are going through the process of spinning out their consumer business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's going to shift them to be more focused on the healthcare space in, in terms of, you know, having a pharma business and a device business. I mean, I think that they're going to end up being about two-thirds pharmaceuticals and about one-third med tech. They have been increasingly talking about wanting to do M&A. Their balance sheet, I don't have the metrics in front of me, but it's in relatively good shape. So they have capacity to do something pretty large if if they chose to. It's really just kind of putting all those pieces together. know, around one, they want to do M&A, two, they're spinning off consumer, three, they're going to kind of be underweight med tech, you know, relative to their pharma business once that spin out's complete. And then four, you know, I've always thought that Boston Scientific could be a, you know, good fit for Johnson & Johnson. So the timing on these things is really hard to predict, but, you know, this would, you know, do a few things for them. One, it would bring them closer to 50-50 in terms of pharmaceuticals and devices. My math is that they'd be about 55% pharmaceuticals and 45% medical devices. Hmm. So almost half and half. And then the second big thing it would do is it should accelerate the growth of their medical device business. You know, the medical device business as it currently stands there is growing kind of low to mid single digits. And I think that's mainly because they're they're heavily weighted toward the orthopedics market with right. the, the Depew uh, synthase business. And that market's just been a slower growth market lately. And and so that's kind of, you know, that's probably like a low single digit growth business slash market. And so, you know, I think that the, but the cardio world has generally been growing faster. And that's largely because some of these newer markets that have opened up things like Tabard, Structural Heart, like Watchman and products like that, atrial fibrillation, ablation is another one. They do have a business there. But, you know, so I think that with uh, you know taking on the Boston Scientific business, which is growing high single digits, that would add, I think, a point, a point and a half to their overall medical device business growth. Certainly, there's other things they could do. 
but you know this would be kind of the more diversified approach to building out a, a kind of a comprehensive medical device business. Mm-hmm. They could go after an Edwards Life Sciences, which I don't cover, or an Intuitive Surgical. Potentially, that's that'd be a fairly large deal, though, even for J. But those are more focused companies. They don't have the diversity of products that Boston Scientific has, and they're they're more expensive, even with the the sell off that we've seen. So. I think that, you know, if they want to do a large, acquire a large medical device company, you know, this is the one that makes the most sense. I mean, a striker or something like that, there's too much overlap with the orthopedics business. And, right. You know, and, and, you know, Becton or Baxter, I mean, those are growing a lot slower. So, you know, so I think this is, if they were to do something large, I think this is the one deal that, that could make a lot of sense. Um, there's not a lot of overlap with the exception of, you know, Boston does have a small EP or AFib business, mm-hmm. but it's only about 4% of Boston overall. And, you know, that could be potentially divested if need be for antitrust reasons. Gotcha. How about on the, on the Boston side, you cover Boston. Is there any sort of feeling that they'd be looking for, for something like this, that this is their logical next step? At least from the outside, it seems as if they're perfectly content going it alone. They're not looking for a buyer, I guess, is my, my, my question. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that they're, you know, looking to, to to sell themselves, but you know, I think if if a company comes along and right. makes an attractive offer, you know, they have to do what's in the interest of their shareholders, and so, so I think that they built a nice business um, over the years through a lot of M and A of their own, and uh, you know, they've divested a few things but acquired a lot, and so I think that you know that that makes them attractive, and you know, I think that. Yeah, if someone knocks on their door and, and offers a healthy premium, I think they'll, you know, have to consider that. So interesting. That's great. Well, next I'd like to uh, talk about uh, Medtronic. I know you posted recently. I don't know if I actually saw the note, but I saw a write up on the note. You're shifting your recommendation of Medtronic from a buy to a hold. Before I get into my question, how significant is that sort of change in recommendation? Does it happen often? Does it go up and down, or is it a, a pretty big move for you to do something like that? Well, I mean, I'd say, you know, <laughs> as an analyst, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking and rethinking my ratings. I try not to whip my ratings around and, and change it too frequently, mm-hmm. but sometimes it is warranted. Um, and if something happens that makes you kind of question question your thesis on a, on a stock, then, you know, you, you might end up, you know, changing your, your rating. Um, and in this case... You know, there's been a number of challenges that Medtronic's dealt with in the past, I don't know, six to 12 months. And this was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, for me in terms of the, the quarter, but more importantly, the guidance that they gave for the fiscal year, and in particular, the, the upcoming quarter. I mean, to be fair, you know, some of the supply chain stuff is, is outside of management's control. But at the same time, you know, we've seen some of their peers, like companies like Boston that we just talked about they've navigated this a lot better. So maybe it's just bad luck. I don't know. But when multiple, you know, things happen that seem to be bad luck, then I start to question whether or not it really is bad luck, I guess, or, or right. bad you know, management. So um, so this was kind of, and then not to mention the fact that, you know, the, the stock had really outperformed this year because we, what we've seen with this market cor- correction or bear market even that we're having now, the, the larger cap, you know, companies that are kind of quote unquote value stocks have have held up a lot better than some of these small mid cap really growth stocks. Um, and the growth stocks are more levered to interest rates. 
and interest rates have been going up and that's hurt the stock, those, those stock prices. But, you know, so Medtronic had been a pretty significant outperformer, at least during this year, relative to some of my other smaller companies. And so I just decided it was time to, you know, move to the sidelines there. And, um, you know, and then the guidance itself, I mean, the upcoming quarter, it is kind of what it is. I understand that, you know, there's limited things that they can do, but I'm questioning a little bit the ability to meet the annual guidance when they're starting out with such a weak quarter, because they're really going to have to put up some strong growth, particularly in the second half of the fiscal year. And, you know, I never, investors and myself included, never really liked those types of setups because you're always worried, like, can they actually deliver this hockey stick that's sort of implied by guidance? And a lot of times companies don't end up doing it. So, so that's kind of the story there. It's just repeated kind of mis-execution, disappointments, combined with guidance that looks somewhat aggressive in my view. So, And just to be clear, the, the first two straws were the delay uh, in uh, the rental innovation news and uh, and the uh, delay in, in Hugo's rollout, correct? Yeah, well, th- that I kind of lumped those together. So the renal innovation, to be clear, it, it's not dead. Um, what's right. happening is that they're, they just... I don't want to say mismanage expectations, but there was some data, interim data, and they were thinking that they might hit their endpoint at the interim point in time rather than the you know going all the way through the trial. And they kind of built up expectations that that would happen. And then when it didn't happen, you know people got frustrated and sold the stock, and you know it kind of was a credibility hit to some degree. And they can't control the trial, but the mistake they made was probably just talking it up before they knew what was actually going to happen. So to be clear, though, it's not dead. This is the on-med pivotal trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the off-med pivotal trial hit its endpoint. They're expecting now data late this year, early next year on, on the on-med trial. And uh, there's a lot of data. So even if this trial were to fail, it's still possible the FDA could approve the product. We'll just have to see. But it's not a foregone conclusion that it will fail. We, we don't just don't know at this point. And then the second thing was their robotics program, supply chain challenges there. Um, as they were ramping that up and they had to lower their guidance for that. And I think that, you know, that was kind of before we saw these more widespread supply chain issues. So um, I don't know that it was something in the macro environment as much as just kind of, you know, dropping the ball on their part. Um, And then the second thing that you didn't mention was the diabetes warning letter. Oh, yes. That matters in that there's some several key products that are at the FDA that they're waiting to get approved including a new pump and a new sensor. And you know, they were counting on those to drive growth. And so with that, until that warning letter is resolved, they're probably not going to be able to get those approved. It's not 100% guaranteed. The FDA might still allow them to be approved, even while they're working on the warning letter. So there's a, there is a chance that they could launch those, but it's not looking good. And then, you know, and to be fair, again, to management, you know, this was probably a legacy issue um, that Jeff Martha had inherited Mm-hmm. Um, it was you know, something that he caused necessarily, but the buck does kind of stop with him, unfortunately. And so those are kind of the things, the renal degeneration and robotics delays, and then the diabetes warning letter. And the third thing was really just the quarter that they just reported recently in the supply chain issues and the, the you know decline that they're expecting in the, the upcoming uh, quarter. Interesting. No, it's 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 interesting how much supply chain is entering every conversation nowadays. You had you had a report recently on your your meeting with ResMed. Uh, you had a, a meeting with management. Came out of there with with uh, positive uh, feelings as to how they're managing their supply chain issues and where they are going forward. So, briefly, what are your your thoughts on, on where ResMed is headed? Yeah. So ResMed's in kind of a 
you know, unique position because of the fact that their right. primary competitor had this massive recall and they're, they're, they're largely out of the market for one of the product categories, which is what's called the flow generator. Philips Respironics is still selling masks, but the flow generators are nearly half the market. And ResMed, you know, they have more demand than they can meet. You know, the ironic part is they probably would have been okay from a supply chain standpoint mm-hmm. if it all hadn't happened. So, um, you know, it's kind of um, kind of a double-edged sword. It's it's leading to tons of demand, but then they can't meet all the demand because they're they can't you know produce enough products. But you know, they are it is still positive because it's going to allow them to capture some share, and some of the share probably goes back to Philips, but some of it will probably stay with Resmed. So, you know, they're they're going to permanently pick up shares as a result of this. So they are going to come out ahead, but maybe not as far ahead if if we weren't in a world where, you know, we had all these production constraints, semiconductor shortages and things like that. But they did sound on the margin a little more positive about the outlook there for the, the, their supply chain and the meetings that, that we hosted with them. Right. And, and again, along the supply chain lines, I know you covered the Cardiovascular Horizons Conference recently, which was focused on peripheral artery disease in that area. And with a contrast, media shortage has been talked about a lot in the general press. From your, your takeaway, though, is that these companies in, the, in that space haven't really been impacted yet or, or the, these procedures are still being done, even though there's this shortage? I think there's definitely going to be an impact in the second quarter. The numbers that I kind of heard thrown around were 5 to 10% impact on procedure volumes. So, I mean, that, that could be material to some companies, depending. It's not a total shutdown. It's not going to be like what we saw during you know the depths of COVID or something like that. But I do think that the... It, there is a real shortage. They're trying to conserve it. There were some anecdotal reports that I heard that there were some hospitals that have shut down elective cath lab procedures because of the shortage, but it's spotty. I mean, it's not a complete shutdown by any means. And, you know, they had a number of live cases that were broadcast and they still had plenty of contrast to use in those cases. So, you know, during this, this conference. Excellent. And final question. I know I like to let you go, but uh, I like to post, I think you uh, report again that you sent out recently about elective surgery searches on Google and using that as a metric for where we're, we're headed. What did the, uh, the study of the, uh, the Google searches indicate? Yeah. So this is something we started doing back in 2020, just after COVID hit with the thesis being that people that are going to have a, some type of a surgery, be it elective I mean, I guess it would have to be elective if it's premeditated. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they would go into Google and, you know, type in colonoscopy if they're having a colonoscopy or knee replacement if they're having a knee replacement and to learn about the procedure beforehand. And so we view this as kind of a leading indicator for procedure volumes. And it did seem to be pretty well correlated with the end market growth that we saw at the companies during COVID. I do think that it's something where we probably will stop doing it eventually when things quote unquote normalize, just because this, there is this you know, decent amount of noise in the signal. When you have huge swings like we saw during the pandemic, I think it was pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about you know, volume growth of 3% versus 5%, I'm not sure you're really going to pick that up. If you're talking about a 20 or 30% decline, um, you will pick that up with this, in, in my view. So you know, we've continued to do it because things are still kind of, you know, strange because of, you know, these recurring COVID waves. But, you know, I think eventually we'll, we'll probably stop because I don't know that it'll, it'll provide the same sort of value that it did, you know, when we have these huge, 
huge headwinds to, to volume growth. Gotcha. It's kind of like a, a windsock. I'll tell you which way the wind's going. But, but, but. Yeah, just, just in terms of what we're seeing, I mean, so the you know first quarter, I mean, we all, all know what the company's reported, but it was pretty consistent in that we saw, you know, a big slowdown in the early part, January and into February. And then March was very strong. And I think what happened was that a lot of the procedures that got deferred in January and early February because of the, the Omicron wave uh, got rescheduled in March. And that, you know, allowed the volumes to kind of catch up to where they should have been during the quarter for the most part. But what we're seeing in the second quarter is that things have slowed down some and sort of normalized from a really strong March. So I don't think that, you know, the growth, the March was, you know, not an abnormally strong month. And I don't think that's going to be continued into the you know, April, June, July timeframe. So, so I think that the second quarter, you know, should be good, but I don't think it's going to be, you know, off the charts or something like that. Great. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Mike Matson, for joining us on the podcast. We'd love to have you back uh, for, your, uh, for your insights of the market. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. I enjoyed uh, giving you my thoughts. Hey, everyone. Tom here. It's my pleasure to bring in our episode's sponsor, KNF. I'm here with Dave Vanderbeck, Product Group Manager at KNF. Dave, tell us about KNF. KNF is a designer and manufacturer of diaphragm and piston pumps for gases and liquids. We serve the OEM, laboratory, and process industries, and our markets include medical primarily, but we are also heavily involved into environmental, analytical instruments, cleaning and disinfection, printing, and many more. How would I describe KNF? Well, basically, we are a large engineering-driven, family-owned company. KNF is Germany and Switzerland-based with 17 locations and five production sites, including our USA manufacturing facility that handles sales, most manufacturing and service for North America. But I have to say that engineering is really at the core of our design philosophy. This is what separates us from other pump manufacturers is our passion to customize our pumps design so that we could optimize the customer's system. We do this by establishing a close collaboration with our customers so that we may learn what pump features will allow them to design a system that will meet all of their engineering and marketing department's goals. Then we make use of our 75 plus years of experience and our modular designs to custom tailor the pump to the application. And in fact, we've been doing this process for so many years that we've actually refined the design and modification process to the point that we can do it efficiently and without adding cost for one piece or thousands. And then, which is important to medical as well as other fields, we can freeze the bill of materials for these customized designs that are then proprietary to the customer. So in the end, we achieve success by contributing to making the customer's system a success. That's great, Dave. We'll hear a little more from KNF a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out some more information, go to knf.com. Well, Anna Dua, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. 
excited to learn about Moon Surgical. I don't want to uh, spoil it for anybody, but uh, but I love the approach you have because it seems to be both iterative and, and kind of revolutionary and, and exactly what it would seem to be what the surgical ORs need right now, especially with manpower shortages or, or staffing shortages. But before we get into that great story, I'd love to hear your great story. How did you get involved with the medical device industry? I've always wanted to be a medical doctor. You know, that's what I wanted to grow up as as a, as a kid. And somehow my parents managed to, you know, talk me out of it. So just by telling <laughs> me that, you know, these were very long studies and I would have to stay home with them for a very long time if I did that. Because typically in Paris, when you go to med school, you just live with your parents. And so I decided I would do something else, uh, but still very much tied to, you know, what happens in a hospital, very much in interaction with physicians. And that's why I decided to do medical devices and engineering and then work in that environment. What was your first job in the medical device industry? I was an application specialist at Monarchia Technologies, which mm -hmm. meant pretty much taking care of anything but R&D, you know, from <laughs> regulatory filings to first clinical trials, first trade shows, first demos, first marketing brochure, et cetera. So it was a lot of fun. That's great. And soon after that, you moved from uh, from there to MD Start and Sofanova. Was there always an interest in sort of the entrepreneurial and investment side of things? Yes, I enjoyed, you know, working at Monarchia for about 10 years a lot because I, I got exposed to a lot of different functions in the company. But as the company grew, I, I was you know, looking forward to going back to something smaller where there was a lot more company building. And that's how I, you know, joined MD Start and that's Steve. Excellent. And uh, how did you first come upon uh, Moon Surgical's technology? So I've known um, the Moon uh, Surgical founder for about 15 years. Uh, his name is Professor Gaillet, and he's you know a very, very well-known laparoscopic surgeon. Uh, and he had been working with a lab in academia here in Paris um, about this concept and developing a functional prototype for years. And so you know somehow reconnected with him, and he basically took me to the lab for a demo, and that's how it started. Give us, if you would, we'll get into the impacts it'll have going forward, hopefully, but can you summarize what Moon Surgical's approach is and what your, how your robotic system works? Yes. So Moon Surgical is about providing assistance to the surgeon and essentially demultiplying you know, the surgeon's capacity by adding a device next to the operating room table um, that essentially equips the surgeon with an additional set of two arms um, so that the surgeons can um, have full control over all their instruments uh, during the procedure and maneuver them in a way that gives them, uh, you know, a full control and anticipation of their needs uh, so that their procedures can be, you know, safer and more efficient. So the robot's role is it's not initiating, it's not, it's not serving as sort of a proxy for the physician who is far away controlling the robot. It, it's more of an assistant. It's side by side with the physician, correct? Yes, exactly. The robot is used to hold in position and while maneuvering the surgical instruments with two arms so that the surgeon can directly control four instruments rather than two. And so the surgeon can basically fully operate all the instruments during the procedure. 
So how is that currently done in surgery or is it currently done? I imagine there are, there are procedures done. We, we have to have four instruments employed. How are those four instruments used if the surgeon has two arms? <laughs> Most minimally invasive surgery procedures have four, you know, trocar ports and four instruments uh, involved. Some of them have more, some of them have less than three, but typically four would be a, you know, an, an average number. And so typically you would have a surgical assistant uh, in the room standing next to the surgeon or across the bed who would hold um, the camera, so the endoscope, um, as well as a, a retractor, which typically would grasp um, tissue, for instance, the liver, and lift it up so that the surgeon can access the tissue of interest and dissect what needs to be dissected. Um, so these two functions, you know, holding the retractor and providing vision to the surgeon, and then holding the retractor and providing exposure are very systematic functions in a laparoscopy surgery. And these are the functions that initially we want to substitute for and provide direct control to the surgeon for. So when you first saw this technology and this approach, were the, the benefits obvious? And I'm asking because it seems like a lot of the other surgical operating systems that we see, they, they are big ideas, big products. They're going to they're gonna basically redo how surgery is, is done. Whereas, again, as I mentioned up top, this is more iterative and kind of small. So in, in one way, you could see someone saying this is sort of a smaller idea than those bigger ideas, but Sometimes those smaller ideas are the better ideas. So what was it about the, the idea that you saw that said that resonated with you and said, I want to be part of this in every possible way as CEO? When I saw the technology, what struck me was that it was very accessible. It would make surgical robotics accessible to everyone because we're not changing the way the surgeon operates. We're not changing the surgical technique. We're not changing the way they were trained. And basically any surgeon could use our system today, you know, without the need to change their workflow, without the need to change their instruments, their skill set. Um, and so, you know, that's really basically the, the bets we're making with Moon Surgical is that it's, it's a simple device um, that is going to be integrated very well into the workflow and in the operating room, and that surgeons can use for any procedure for any patient in any operating room. It will become an essential tool of the operating room. We mm -hmm. have an anesthesiology tower, you have a laparoscopy tower, you even have a light, you have a bed, and you have a maestro platform. That's really the vision for the product and why I thought um, initially that it had so much potential. Well, let's talk physically about how you became involved with the company. I, I know you raised a seed round in uh, 2020. I want to talk about what that was like during the, the high point of the pandemic, but when did you first become involved in Moon Surgical, I guess my question should be. Yes, so Moon Surgical was seeded and incubated by MD Start, um, which I'm a partner of. And so I became involved in Moon Surgical when we started basically doing diligence uh, on the project. It was probably in January of 2020. And when we identified that technology in, in the academic lab that I, that I mentioned. So we worked on the project and on the diligence for a few months, um, interviewed a lot of people in the surgical robotics field, took a few to demonstrate in the lab to make sure that they also recognize the potential. And then we decided to make the investment. And that's when I was basically designated as you know, the CEO for the project because I had some prior experience in the surgical field. I see. So what was it like raising that, that seed round? You're at Sofanova, so I mean, clearly, you did it involve a roadshow? 
it, it did not involve a roadshow. It involved convincing basically our peers, right, mm-hmm. at Sofia Nova, that this was a great opportunity. What it involved was, I think, projecting ourselves beyond what we had seen in this lab. It involved also some level of visibility and reassurance on the fact that we could secure rights to that technology and transfer it out of the lab. So some, you know, IP work that made sure we would have basically a license to to transfer what had been developed in the lab and also some visibility on our capacity to hire a few key resources that would be needed to develop the project and develop a plan to get to meaningful milestones by the time we would have to raise a series a so it was a lot more about having a plan for company building then, you know, doing a roadshow or convincing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very obvious that our approach was um, unique and differentiated, but how exactly we would, you know, develop it and how we could secure resources to do it was, I think, where we needed to convince ourselves and convince um, our colleagues. The news you announced last week, and let's just kind of stay on the financing fundraising track for a moment. We can get back to talking about the technologies that you did raise, a $31.3 million, $31. million Series A. You drew in uh, investments from uh, JJDC, Cathay Health, Sofanova remained an investor, of course, as well as some uh, some interesting individuals. What was the uh, the fundraising process like to, to put that $31.3 million round together? We started fundraising early December. We mm-hmm. had a very concise slide deck uh, and a very aggressive plan trying to close this round, uh, of course, as soon as possible. We had a lot of things to take care of in parallel. You know, we were still an eight people team at the time with the bulk of the team focused on getting our prototype ready for the clinic, um, getting our prototype ready for initial uh, submissions with the FDA. So I had promised the team that, you know, I I would be fundraising mostly with my COO and we would not take too much of their bandwidth, which was, of course, completely false. (laughs) 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 Fundraising has a huge impact on the whole team. (laughs) But we tried to we tried to have a very focused approach. Right. We 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 spoke with people whom we thought could be of interest. We did a lot of demonstrations. We thought that bringing people to demonstrations was key. And we initially focused on getting people to understand the the value proposition of the product and the technology uh, before taking them into further diligence steps. So we we did get initial interest that was very strong. We, We signed a term sheet late February. And then I would say that things became slightly more difficult uh, with the global situation. Um, Clearly, we started having people around us that were concerned about their ability to secure the the investments that had been mentioned. And also they were themselves exposed with their portfolio on the public markets and had different things to manage on their side, reassuring their own investors. And so we ultimately decided we we needed to close relatively quickly so that we could, number one, go back to work and developing what we need to develop. And also make sure we we had the money secured in the bank before the investment community started falling apart. <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I've, I'm so used to talking about pandemics and existential threats. You forget financial markets certainly are kind of important yes, too. They, they have suffered <laughs> over the past couple of months. Oh, yes. that's a great point. So interesting investor. I mean, as I mentioned, Johnson Johnson is an investor. I mean, they obviously have been pursuing their own surgical programs as well. 
does this sort of reflect how Moon Surgical's approach is, is not a competitor to other systems, be it Otava or even a Hugo or others, but really more of something used in parallel or as a complement? That's a great point. And, you know, I, I won't comment, of course, for the for the strategics, but I think ultimately it boils down to the market segments mm-hmm. you're addressing. And, and we view our platform as very complementary with some of the other approaches, which might be more appropriate for more sophisticated clinical indications and for um, select operating rooms and environments. You know, our system does not require a dedicated room or a dedicated team or a dedicated training. Um, and so I think it can address a market that is kind of higher volume, lower complexity type mm-hmm. of surgeries, while some of the other platforms would, would be more appropriate for different you know, settings and indications. Is Moon Surgical's playbook for rolling this business out for, for selling it, it? I imagine it must be different, much different than other robotic surgical systems. You fit into existing infrastructure, I think, as you said. And you don't have your own surgical instruments using the instruments right. that, that they have. So how do you see this company building and its and its eventual commercial rollout sort of building? Is it just as another uh, piece of equipment in the operating room and the surgical robot aspect to it is almost secondary? That's, of course, the key question, right? How, we, how do we bring this to the market? Yeah. And- we, we think our technology by design is made for a very broad adoption. And, and we also deeply believe that we have to some extent to reinvent or define a business model that will also make it accessible, right? It's not only about the technology, it's also about your business model and how you go about deploying it into you know, ambulatory surgical centers and, and hospitals. Um, and so that's really one of the you know, key topics for the, for the A round and for the next 12 months. It's figuring out which business model or which business models in the plural we are going to pursue. We have a number of assumptions and have reasons to believe that maybe a straight capital equipment sale is not you know, the most appropriate model for us. Mm-hmm. But we need to validate those assumptions. We need to speak with um, you know, the key stakeholders and identify what our very first customer profile target is. You know, whether it's an independent ASC, a hospital-owned ASC, a hospital outpatient surgery department, these will have different constraints. They'll have different decision-making processes. They will have different issues when it comes to staff shortages. Mm-hmm different um, reimbursement structures. And so we need to understand, you know, for each one of these segments, what the pain points are and what they're sensitive to in terms of business model, uh, so that we can decide ultimately which one we go with first and with which business model. So we, we have, of course, a number of ideas and assumptions that, that we have, you know, discussed, um, you know, with investors and, and with other people in the past few months. But, you know, a big part of the next six months to a year is speaking to a lot more people, making sure that these assumptions are right and deciding on an initial strategy. And what does the regulatory pathway look like? You're, you're not saying that we're creating a new way to perform a procedure and we need to demonstrate it's more uh, effective or as effective than something existing. You're, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, you're plugging into an existing procedure and just saying we're helping them do what they're already doing. Is a lesser regulatory pathway as a result? Do you know what, what you're going to be required from in Europe and the U.S.? 
So in terms of risk profile, we have a very, you know, very um, reasonable or a much lower risk profile than some of the other telemanipulated robotic system, mm-hmm. you know, which is pretty obvious because the surgeon is in direct control of the instruments, right? The instruments are always moved by the surgeon. And the arms of our robots basically follow the surgeon and then lock the instruments in place when the surgeon lets go. So, you know, there is a case to be made for a, a much lower risk. And there has been approvals in the past for devices that hold and position surgical instruments. So, you know, we've had initial discussions with the FDA about our regulatory strategy and have some initial, I think, you know, agreement on, on how to pursue this. And we are hoping to confirm that basically in the next few months. Interesting. We touched upon it a bit earlier, but I just want to sort of understand the system a bit more. There's the robotic element to it is merely holding the instrument in place and, and allowing the surgeon to guide it somewhat effortlessly. There's no push a button, use a joystick and move the arm on your own. The, all the manipulation is done physically by the surgeon with their own physical hands. You're right. The robotic component is about, uh, you know, making the system completely mechan- completely transparent mechanically when the surgeon moves it, as you said, effortless, uh, mm-hmm. which is not, you know, which takes a lot of software and hardware. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not and, diminishing it. <laughs> um, you know, and, and to date, the, the arms do not move automatically. There is a lot of things we can, there are a lot of things we can add in the future when we learn how a surgeon likes, you know, the camera position or how a surgeon likes, you know, their tissue exposed. We can build that into the system and learn it over time and automate the movement of the arms based on that. But for now, it's the surgeon who is grabbing and moving the instruments throughout the procedure. So with, with other systems, robotic systems, I think it could be argued, critics would say it was a, a hammer looking for the nail. It was, a, it was a problem, a solution looking for a problem. This is one where you see, and we mentioned a few times, shortage in staffing, uh, mm-hmm. shortage in, in, in just helping the ORs. Rural healthcare systems in particular, being unable to draw the talent they need. It would seem business-wise, market-wise, that this is definitely a hammer and there's definitely a nail, and it would seem like a, a smoother landing than perhaps something more ambitious and grandiose. Yes, exactly. One of our main questions throughout the seed round was, you know, is there value for our current system, mm-hmm. right? Which, as you said, is, is is fairly simple. It's very elegant, but it's it doesn't have automation features, and it's you know basically putting you know the control of the scope and the retractor um, in the hands of the surgeon. And what we've heard repeatedly from both surgeons and administrators is that it, it does have a tremendous value already. Administrators spoke about staff shortages over and over, right? They spoke a lot about surgeon retention and how that gets more difficult when staff shortages issues get bigger. They spoke about the fact that surgeons um, are very much focused about uh, efficiency in the UR and, and our system enables that, right? Um, they have direct control, so they don't basically waste any time on some of the inefficiencies associated with communicating with an assistant or with directing how their scope should be positioned to someone who essentially controls their eyes during the, the procedure, right? And similarly for the retractor, right? They can control how they access tissue without having to rely on someone else to do that. So the the feedback was overwhelmingly positive, which is why we decided we we would make an initial version of the system that is what what we have today. 
So by that, do you, are you suggesting that the next generation of, of Maestro or whatever it may be called may have more functionality? One of the beauties with our system is that you are at the bedside with a surgeon. So, you know, we are constantly, you know, measuring and recording what the surgeon is doing with the surgical instruments. And based on that, we think we have a unique opportunity to learn how an individual surgeon performs surgery which can be turned into um, basically automating how the scope and the retractor are positioned throughout a given procedure in a way that is tailored to a specific surgeon. Mm. So, you know, of course, this requires clinical experience. It requires generating data sets, um, et cetera. But we think there is also a great opportunity to facilitate the surgeon's life even further by having these either fully automated or semi-automated ways of moving the scope and the retractor. It's amazing. So in the, my crudest possible comparison is like having your car seat positioning in place when you get in the car you push a button and it, it's immediately all the windows are adjusted to your liking so very cool exactly. yeah that's great so do you have a, an idea in mind for when you would like to go to market do you, is it many years out is it perhaps short term where are you with regulatory what does the next couple of years look like for you sorry that's a lot of questions in one but <laughs> no, <laughs> what, I, what's I, next so the answer to this one is, is fairly simple, uh, you know, and it's it was communicated when we announced our fundraising. The use of proceeds of the fundraising, um, we just announced a Series A, is really to finalize the development of the product mm -hmm. uh, and have something that we can launch commercially in the United States by the end of the Series A. The duration for that use of proceeds is, you know, fairly standard, right? You know how often we raise money <laughs> in a VC-funded uh, startup company. So mm -hmm. basically within, you know, within the next two years, we want to get there. Excellent. And final question or more observations, last question. I mean, amongst, we, we talked to Steve Osterley for the podcast today. He's an advisor. You also have Dr. Fred Mall, who's kind of a big name in surgical robotics as an advisor. It's got to be a great boost for the company to have folks of that caliber coming in as, as advisors, in addition to the investors you have. Uh, and you have many people from Oris uh, on staff as well. Seems like you're having a lot of momentum going forward and a lot of validation of the concept. What does all this support mean for Moon Surgical? We're very honored to have you know both Steve Osterley and Fred Mall uh, among our advisors. They both came for demonstrations of the platform, obviously, and were both um, I think very impressed with what we had built, but also very much convinced about our vision and our ambition and some of the features we just discussed and, and want to add into the system. I, I think they also recognized how differentiated our approach is as a kind of category creator in mm -hmm. the field, and they are positively intrigued about you know what we're going to turn it into right i mean there are questions that are outstanding as we said you know around the business model and the go to market strategy we're hoping that they will help you know us basically with their experience and their connections nail down the answers to these questions uh, we're hoping that they will help us um, of course grow our team and get ready for you know clinical experience in the us and, and a commercial launch excellent well, it's a very, very exciting idea, a company, and can't wait to keep, uh, keep track of your progress. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Tom. All right, well, now I'd like to bring in our episode sponsor, KNF. I'm speaking with Dave Howard. Dave is the business development manager at KNF. Dave, I know KNF has been busy lately. What's new? What can you talk about? 
Thanks a lot, Tom. Um, well, as you've already heard, you know, KNF is a manufacturer of both liquid and gas diaphragm and piston pumps that have been used in many applications around the world. Our main focus here in the U.S., though, has been with medical devices and especially diagnostic systems. Recently, we have noticed an increased drive for fluidic systems that reduce or completely remove the existence of pulsation, which is typically generated by pumps within the circuit. So we have actually been really hard at work to develop an entirely new line of what we call smooth flow products. Pulsation is nearly impossible to avoid with many pump technologies. Half the time the pump is drawing liquid in and the other half of the time it's pushing liquid out. So no matter how fast you run the pump, you still have this stop and start motion of the liquid, which basically leads to what we feel and hear in tubing when it's shaking and vibrating around. So at times, uh, the pressure fluctuations generated by the pulsation can lead to all types of problems. It can cause cavitation and air bubbles in the media. Uh, the vibrating tubing itself can be felt throughout the system, which could impact the accuracy of analytical devices and so forth. Uh, tubing in the system actually ends up wearing quicker. And over time, this could lead to sporadic leakages. And also, you have this inconsistent performance basically depending on what types of restrictions you have in the lines. So KNF has essentially fixed this problem with this new line of smooth flow and low pulse products. We call them our FP product line, and we can accommodate flow rates as low as just a few milliliters per minute, all the way up to 12 liters per minute and uh, operating pressures up to six bar. So with all of the changes that went into the design and the development of these products, we're actually now seeing a more efficient pump. And this is both from a size standpoint as well as regarding power consumption. Vibration is of course minimized, stress on tubing is now reduced and there's much less chance of cavitation. And with these lower peak to peak pulsation fluctuations, we're actually expecting much longer lasting pumps uh, with much less stress on the motor or bearings and so forth. So really, we're just really excited to get more of these pumps into these medical device industry. And we're already seeing some really positive feedback from our customers. Well, thanks again to KNF for sponsoring this podcast. Thanks to Dave Howard and Dave Vanderbeck of KNF for sharing their thoughts. If you want to find out more information, you can go to knf.com. You can also send an email to Dave Howard. He is at dave.howard at knf.com. Well, Steve Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Good to see you again, Tom. It's great to connect with you. I came to know you as Senior VP of Medicine and Technology at, uh, at Medtronic, and you were always the one at meetings sort of espousing the marriage between technology and medical devices. And it seems like that vision that you were up there pushing forth, you and others, of course, but you were really the face of it, I think, really seems to be coming true today. Do you, do you feel as if uh, things that you've been talking about all these years are uh, right there in front of your eyes now? Well, you know, I, I certainly don't have clairvoyance. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it wasn't a very difficult thing to see. I mean, what I was watching 10 or 15 years ago was really the evolution of, of information technology. And my thesis then, and it remains, is that whoever has the most data and knows how to do smart things with it wins in devices. And it's why I put the bet on Google many, many years ago as being the number one device company long before Verily existed. And I, I'm still all in on that. It, it's pretty clear to me that as we contemplate how do we manage healthcare for seven and a half billion people on the planet, that there's no way on earth that you can train enough physicians, build enough beds to actually distribute healthcare in any other way than through technology. 
So we, you know, we're talking about implanted and wearable sensors, intelligent algorithms, remote sensing, uh, remote patient care. It's the only logical way to deliver healthcare. When you think about it, most of the healthcare that needs to be delivered is in the realm of chronic diseases. I mean, technology is obviously playing out in acute diseases, and we're going to talk about that with robotics. But in terms of chronic diseases, heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, inflammatory diseases of the joints or the gut, these are all chronic diseases that need to be managed chronically. And how crazy is it that you would just go to the doctor once a month or every two weeks to check in? I mean, these are daily issues that have to be monitored and treated. And it's it's obvious to me that technology will play a role there. One of the interesting things that's evolved in technology is around the so-called field of bioelectronic medicine or, or electroceuticals, whatever you want to call it. We called it neuromodulation at Medtronic 50 years ago and started pacing the heart and the gut and the brain, you name it. But um, the idea that the everything in the body is electrically active through an electrochemical reaction should be able to be modified through technology. And so you're so of course you've seen that play out as well. So I don't want to say I'm right, but I, I think I was stating the obvious. Well, where are we in, in that process? I mean, you talked about uh, diabetes. We're seeing things like the Omnipod, where where patients or people with diabetes are being given more control over their care. We're certainly seeing bioelectronic medical devices come through. I'm thinking about Cala Health with Trio, with, with Tremors, but there's others as well. Are we just sort of uh, at the very beginning of this? Do you feel like we're at a point where we're entering a, an early middle stage? Uh, where, where are we in that process? Well, I mean, we're talking here about electrons as drugs, and I think we're at a very early stage of it, Tom. As I mentioned, the, everything in the body is modulated by the central nervous system, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, they basically have a closed loop control of everything from the release of digestive enzymes to neurotransmitters to heartbeat. And the more we understand about the fundamental physiology of that, we realize that that can be modulated through electrons. And so you're seeing this play out in things like diabetes, where people are trying to do neuromodulation in, in, in sort of the parahepatic sympathetic nervous system. You're seeing this play out uh, look at the work that Kevin Tracy's done on vagal nerve stimulation for rheumatoid arthritis. You're seeing that play out. There's really interesting stuff going on and basically ultrasound stimulation of the spleen for inflammatory diseases. So I, I think the more we begin to understand the physiology of the parasympathetic and sympathetic nerve systems, you're going to see more and more of this stuff. The question is, does it have to actually be implanted? Can you do, per, like Cal is a good example of a peripheral stimulation, uh, blue wind, Dan Lemaitre, you may remember, is mm -hmm. now overactive bladder. I, mean, I think you're going to see a, a lot more of it because the beauty of bioelectronic medicine is that it, it shouldn't have untoward side effects, unlike drugs that you take systemically with the hope that a little bit of it gets to an area of interest, Parkinson's disease. How crazy is it that you take L-DOPA and hope a little bit it gets to the substantia nigra of the brain? Of course, there's massive side effects that have if you just put a lead in the substantia nigra or the basal ganglia, you could probably do better with Parkinson's. And that's, of course, what deep brain stimulation is. I think there's a lot of room to go here. Interesting. I want to get into moon surgical in a moment, but I do I do want to circle back just on the Google comment. Because you, you, before we started uh, recording this, you, you, know, you mentioned that this was your prediction that Google was going to be a, a large competitor or the competitor for Medtronic certainly drew a lot of attention and attention. 
and uh, probably some tension too. But mostly, I was thinking about attention. What does that look like? You mentioned you mentioned Verily and and and, it, and the traction it's getting. But does this mean that Verily or whatever iteration it takes when this ultimately comes to fruition? Is it developing medical devices? Is it working with medical device makers? Do you see it this time? And I know you're not Nostradamus, but do you see medical device companies looking remarkably different because they're approaching this from sort of a data and electronic side, electric side versus the traditional direction where they've come from manufacturing and creating metal or plastic things that perform functions? Yeah, I mean, look, my thesis about Google was that whoever has the most data and knows how to aggregate it and analyze it is going to win in healthcare. And Google gets over a billion searches a day in healthcare, over a billion a day, they tell me. And so you realize if you have access to those data, you can learn a lot about what is ailing people, what what solutions people are seeking, who would be great people to direct to clinical trials, who would be great people to direct to therapies, you name it. And so Google saw that, they formed Verily, and they are making products. I mean, they've made them largely through JVs. I'm sure you're aware that they started surgical robots with J&J. For J&J realized the value and ultimately bought it back from them. But they have a deep, deep program in neuromodulation with GSK, who, of course, years ago started their venture program, Action Potential Ventures. And GSK, classic pharmaceutical company, is probably the first of the big pharma companies to fully recognize the potential of electrons as drugs. And so GSK is all in, and I don't think it's publicly disclosed, but it's a large number with Verily to make neuromodulation devices. And Verily actually has some really good skills at MEMS manufacturing. And so Hmm. um, you may remember the first time people heard about Google was when they bought this contact lens that could sense glucose. Yep. That came out. Working with Alcon, I believe, right? Came out of the University of Washington. And they hired most of those people. They have a big MEMS manufacturing capability. They have a wafer fab. And they do really interesting stuff at Verily. But what I like about Verily is is the baseline project where they've lined up 10,000 people and basically have, I think, around four terabytes of data on each person that from scanning to blood test, to genomic, proteomic, biome sequencing. And they're using this uh, for discovery. And this, this leads into this whole field of computational biology, uh, in which I think Verily is going to lead at. But because there's nobody, I, and so who else could do this? I mean, Microsoft could have tried to do this. Um, IBM tried to do this. But Google, I mean, Amazon maybe could try to do this, but Google has by far the most profound capabilities in data aggregation and and analytics to basically start to look at who benefits from devices, who should get a device, what device should they get. I mean, all of that to me derives from real world data and and tracking it, aggregating it. And I, I still think Verily wins at this. Absolutely. I believe it. But was Verily with its work with, and we'll get into robotic surgery now, but Verily's work with robotic surgery. I mean, I, I think people saw that as an effort that didn't work necessarily. And maybe so people I are. Totally maybe, dis- yeah, I disagree with that. I mean, they, they, they set out a pathway and a trajectory for J&J that I thought was very rational. I'll tell you what I think is publicly understood about it. But what they wanted to do was daisy chain all these robots around the country that J&J was going to build and stream data from it to begin to inform surgeons about technique. And you could probably see if you had a thousand robots doing cholecystectomy that you could learn a lot about 
what works, what doesn't work. And basically, if once 5G got roaring and you could have sort of no latency, you could do remote proctoring. I mean, just one thing after another. So I think that was part of the pathway. I mean, Google, of course, didn't need to make instruments. Ethicon makes instruments. That's the easy part. What J&J didn't know how to do was what I just told you. How do you aggregate data coming off of these robots? How do you learn from them? Google was doing some interesting things in imaging as well that would be part of the, the scope for imaging. So, yeah, I mean, I think J&J ultimately saw the value of Verb and took it back. I don't think it failed in any way. So, but I haven't heard much about what how Verb's doing. You know, Scott Hennekins was running that. He left. And so I, I don't really know what's happened to it since I lost visibility once it left Verily again. As a, so I serve as a proxy at Verily for Tomasic. And so Tomasic invested, they own at 1.20% of Verily. And I, I've been a senior advisor to Tomasic for years. I and mean, if we get into what I'm doing now, I could tell you a little bit about why I work with people like Tomasic, but they write very large checks. They wrote one to Alphabet to basically support Verily. But I've lost visibility to Verb once it left. But I, I don't think it failed in any way within the hands of Andy Conrad and his merry pranksters at Google. So let's talk about what you what you are, are doing now. Uh, so uh, you're working with Cafe Capital, which uh, invested in Moon Surgical, and we'll talk about that investment in a moment. But you mentioned Tomasic. What are some of the entities you're, you're, you're working with? So I've spent a lot of time in the private equity world, which I had limited exposure to it, Medtronic, but a lot of exposure now. So I sit on a couple of private equity boards, one in Germany. Uh, it's called Ceramtech. It's the largest maker of ceramic products in the world, including ceramic hips, knees. Uh, and I sit on the board of the world's largest maker of auto injectors for biologics. This is called SHL Medical. Over 180 million auto injectors a year. They have about 35% of the global market share. This is kind of an interesting company. You say, why would I do that? Well, these are the guys who are actually treating chronic disease. Remember, we talked about this earlier. And I thought that, you know, the final mile in the treatment of chronic disease is injecting yourself with a biologic, whether it's Embrel or Neupogen or GLP-1, you name it. All these people are injecting themselves. And so you realize that if you had your hands on the injector, you have kind of, and the injector was connected, you could begin to manage chronic diseases because I got involved through that angle with SHL Medical in Switzerland. I'm on the board of Baxter, which has been kind of interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, and I am on the board of a couple of biotech companies in Boston, which has been a very wild ride of late. And uh, so, you know, I, I have been in advising Tomasic. For those who don't know, this is one of the largest investment companies in the world based in Singapore, about $400 billion in assets. They like to write large checks. When you have that kind of money, you have to. And so I serve as a proxy at Verily for them and their investment. I serve as a proxy for them. Uh, in Philadelphia, Jim Wilson, who is the founder of Gene Therapy, has a large incubator that's funded there through Tomasic. And I serve on the advisory board, which is three people. I mean, it's a big piece of work. And so I'm deeply involved with gene therapy there and also in Boston. So if you told me six years ago that I'd be doing gene therapy and cell therapy, <laughs> I'd say, no, Tom, it's not what I do, but it's what I do now. So I, I've, uh, yeah, I, I've got a lot of balls in the air. So through your role in Tomasic, what can you, can you give us a glimpse just to hit Verily one more time? What do you, what do you see coming out of that company that you can reveal uh, the next couple of years? Well, again, we talked about it. I think that the biggest thing that's going to come out of the, that company is the baseline project and sort of their ability to aggregate 
massive data sets on individual patients to inform drug discovery. And I think it's going to be really, really big. I like a lot the work they're doing in neuromodulation with GSK. They were doing a lot of ophthalmology work. They've spun that out for the most part. So that's kind of less kind of interesting. I think Verily ultimately is going to be able to couple all the data that comes through Google. I mean, Andy Conrad, who runs Verily's stated ambition is to buy Google. You may remember Alphabet is, is Google, Verily, and Waymo, the autonomous car. And Google is, of course, the big money winner for Alphabet. But Andy thinks that Verily, Andy Conrad is the chairman of Verily. He thinks it's going to be bigger than Google. Wow. Yeah. He, he has an unconstrained ambition and, and, and ego. I love the guy. That's fantastic. That's uh, it'll be exciting to watch. Let's let's talk about uh, your work with. Uh, am I saying it right? Cathay Capital is that the? I got involved with Cathay Capital, and we'll get to move surgical because I, I for sure don't want to leave this conversation without no seeing my enthusiasm for it. But, so Cathay is a really interesting investment company that most people on your podcast have probably not heard of. It's based in Paris and in Shanghai, hence the name Cathay. It was started by a guy named Mingpo Kai who, as a young man, cornered the tombstone market of France, another really interesting story that we'll have to talk about some other time. <laughs> very, very wealthy. His home village in China was sitting on the largest granite deposit in the world, I'm told. And he started importing granite into France and became the king of tombstones at a young age and made a, a large amount of money and parlayed this into an investment company called Cathay Capital. It's kind of a classic you know, maybe five billion under assets. They they have credit. You know, they do private equity, but they decided to start up a healthcare venture fund that would basically work between Europe and China. And I we haven't talked about, it, but I've been very interested in China for a long, long time. You know, I'm on the board of a Chinese company at the moment. I, I've spent a lot of time there, and they they wanted so they're in the process of closing a $500 million healthcare fund that's run by a guy named Hanji Hu. Now, this all circles back to Tomasic because I Hanji did the deal at Verily for Tomasic. Okay. I helped him do that. Hanji is an electrical engineer from Stanford who went to Harvard Business School. He's one of the smartest investors I've ever worked with. And when he left Tomasic to go raise this fund a couple of years ago, he asked me if I would be an advisor. And I said, I'm kind of busy. And at the time, I was still at NEA. Uh, as the, as you may know, Josh Mackauer left NEA to yep. full-time to run biodesign. I was kind of Josh's designate there. So when Josh left, I left. And so I had I freed up some time to help Hanji. And I underestimated how much it was going to take. It was a lot of time. But it's been really interesting. And one of the – so while we were raising money, we actually were warehoused some funds by Mingpo Kai, the tombstone magnet because we were seeing too many interesting deals before we closed the fund, particularly in France, which is where the fund is based. And it turns out that there's a couple of really interesting things that go on in France. One is in neuromodulation. The beginnings of deep brain stimulation actually are in France, in Grenoble, with a guy named Philippe Benabit. But the, if I had to say, what is the one thing that I've seen that's stronger? Well, of course, core valve came out of France as well. Right. So structural heart's pretty big in France, but what is really big is robotics. We were seeing one interesting robotics deal after another, and we're about to invest in a second one that I don't think I can say much about now, but it's in the orthopedic space. Okay. 
But I I saw Moon Surgical. I knew Ann Oswa. Ann Oswa is the CEO of Moon. And I was at MD Start. Do you remember MD Start? I do. Yep. Yeah. So M- MD Start was an incubator in France, although outsourced to Czechoslovakia. But I basically, along with Antoine Papernik at Safanova in Paris, we started MD Start to basically call ideas out of the field, the Medtronic European field. If you look at the history of medical devices, I mean, almost all the interesting ones came out of Europe. It turns out whether you're talking about hips and knees or interocular lenses or coronary stents or angioplasty or deep brain stimulation, electrophysiology, we could go on and on. They all came out of Europe. There's reasons for that, which maybe we could get into, but I wanted to basically continue to call these ideas out of Europe. And so we set it up a portal called Eureka to basically have physicians and our salespeople around Europe. This is when I was trying to sort of funnel ideas into MD Start. And Oswald was there as an associate. I was impressed with her and she's kind of grown up over the last five or six years. She started Moon Surgical. It was initially funded out of MD Start. And the minute I saw that, I knew that this was a winner, but I called Fred Mall about it. So for those who are listening, Fred's the founder of Intuitive. Also, Morris, he also was one of the originators of laparoscopic surgery. I mean, he's just a very inventive surgeon. Fred loved Moon. When I come, Fred absolutely loved him. J&J wanted to invest in it. I think they may have. I have to look at the cap table. And again, I don't know what they, I think it's public that J&J was invested. I think they did. But Fred is going to be an advisor to Moon, as am I. I didn't want to be on the board because I'm already on too many boards. It looks it looks silly. But I can certainly help them and will help them. So what I liked about Moon and why we invested is that Moon set out to, to solve a problem. If you look at robotics in general, people when people think of robotic surgery, Tom, they think of these highly complex robots that, are auton- that basically are away from the bedside. Of course, in the Da Vinci robot by Intuitive, was the first, and what I've said many times, and Fred has seemed to accept it, is that there's nothing intuitive about intuitive surgical. It's a highly complicated robot, 5,000 plus moving parts, and and it was developed to operate on the on the moon. Basically, this was a NASA project at, at Stanford that basically people said, "Why don't we operate on Earth with this thing?" But it's 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 it was a way to sort of operate in the space station. I mean, they were. There were wild ideas about how you would use a robot, but that's how you got the person autonomously working at a robot somewhere else. And I never understood it until I saw how effective it was at working in the deep pelvis, where something like Hugo, Medtronic's robot, or the verb robot at J&J, or of course Da Vinci, make great sense if you have to get into deep spaces where you can't manipulate instruments. Laparoscopic surgery in the pelvis is almost impossible without heavily wristed robot, you just can't get down there and work. And so they, they finally, after I don't know, 10, 15 years, Da Vinci proved that robotic surgery is better than regular surgery for prostate surgery. Well, how much surgery goes on that's prostate surgery? I mean, it's less than 5%, I mean, way less. But do you need a complicated surgery to do a cholis, uh, robot to do a cholecystectomy or a gastric sleeve or a hysterectomy? No, I don't think so. So most of these procedures today are done through laparoscopes with two operators. You have a surgeon 
shear here operating the cutting device and the cautery devices. And then there's a, usually a second assistant who is retracting and following the action with a scope that is a visual scope. And if you watch one of these things, the operating surgeon, she usually reaches over and grabs the arm of the assistant, moves it this way because she doesn't like where the camera is, or pushes it up the left arm. She wants it retracted more. And generally in a teaching hospital, these are residents who do this, you know, or learning. But most hospitals are not teaching hospitals. They're just conventional community hospitals, ambulatory surgery centers, where you have a, generally a nurse or a tech who's doing this stuff. It's, an, it's a full-time equivalent is sitting there and it's ergonomically torture, absolutely torture. Okay. You have to hold still, you know, for a long period of time in a very awkward position. And so it's ergonomically awful, but it also fully occupies an FTE. What Moon Surgical has said is, why don't we solve that problem first? Is let's solve the ergonomics of this and solve the consumption of FTE. So they created two console robots where the, Surgical arm comes out and it attaches to any instrument that you want to attach to it. Generally, it's a retractor or a scope. Immediately attaches. And then you can position the instrument where you want and let go, and the thing stays there. So there's some really interesting haptics involved that allow mm-hmm. you to manipulate this thing and not have it drift and move around, but move when you want it to. So you, so you don't have to, like, it's not like weightlifting, you know. So it's a really clever system that they developed with haptics that allow you to manipulate the arm, let go of it, and just leave it where it is. And so, look, if you say, look, I, so you're not grabbing someone's wrist and moving it around, and, and there's no one there. So you realize that you've just taken an FTE out of the operating room. You can do the math on this, how you would pay back a robot like this. But I, I saw this as simple, and, it's, and it, it basically returns control to the surgeon. One of the things that I didn't like about intuitive or Hugo or verb is that the surgeon is nowhere near the bedside. Bad things happen at the bedside and most surgeons would rather be there than not. There, I think the people who don't understand robotic surgery, Tom, think that, they, that the surgeons like to sit in a chair and be lazy. They don't. So the operating surgeon would, wants to be near the action and be near the instruments. This basically returns full control to the surgeon to kind of move the instruments around. Look, I want the scope here. I want the retractor higher here. I'll move it and leave it instead of constantly bickering and badgering the assistants. No, no, no. Show me, show me the cystic duct. I'm not seeing the cystic duct. That kind of, the surgeons can just take control of that themselves. It's so it's a relatively inexpensive thing to make. So that I think this is going to be highly affordable to all the community hospitals. One of the problems with Da Vinci is, I mean, it's a very expensive robot, as will be Hugo. And this thing obviously will not be anywhere near as expensive. The value proposition for Da Vinci and Hugo, and why, by the, why, the, why the, I think Medtronic, I know why Medtronic got involved unless I was there, and why J&J wanted to go this, they have these huge franchises and instruments through Ethicon and Covidian. So they want the robot to pull through the instruments. Mm-hmm. But the moon is basically indifferent to the instrument. You can connect any instrument through a magnetic system to this. So you, they don't have to be pulling through instruments. So they, they can make this device pretty cheaply and er, people can use it no matter what instrument they want to use. So is it's, it's not being used in the procedure itself. It's merely, well, it's being used in the procedure, but it's not actually going to be going in as a proxy of the surgeon. 
It's just holding the devices of, of holding the instrument that's already been inserted. It's going, in, it's going in as a proxy of the assistant. Okay. Yeah. And so you've removed the assistant and all the costs of that, and you've given better control to the operating surgeon. So the surgeons are going to like this. They, they're going to care less about the absence of an assistant in terms of the financial benefit. Uh, they'll care, but not they won't care like the operating room personnel care. But they're they're going to care because they're going to like this because it gives much better control to them. And ultimately, I mean, there are other generations of Moon that if you talk to Ed and you'll you'll hear about. There are other generations of Moon that will be smarter. I mean, they they're tracking all this these instruments, and there's a camera that tracks as well, so that they'll begin to collect data just like Verb wants to collect data. That was my next question about the data. It will have those components ultimately. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So just final question about the, the field at large. How does this all play out? We've, we're seeing so many robotic surgery companies getting funded. They can't all be around 10 years from now. Are they acquired? Are they consolidated? Are they, Is there yeah, one or I, two winners? I think, I think they're acquired. I mean, you're seeing this in the orthopedic industry. Most of the robots that I'm seeing are in the spine ortho business. I mean, so Medtronic bought Mazor for some very large amount of money, 1.7 billion, simply to drive pedicle screws. Mm-hmm. And the data are that it's better than surgeons doing it on their own. Likewise, take something like Mako that Stryker owns. I mean, this is for knee surgery. I mean, you're seeing a, sort of the alignment of knee surgery is so crucial that you've got to get it right and the cuts have to be just right. And I think that robots will do that better than humans. So you'll see that play out. I think you'll see it play out in ophthalmology where one of the great advantages of, of robotic surgery is that it can scale tremor. I mean, robots don't have tremor. All people have tremor, some more than others. And, and so the ability to scale tremor, you'll see this in kind of, so these are limited robots, not autonomous robots like Da Vinci, but robots that make a, a task more precise, more accurate, and with less tremor. So you'll see that in ortho, you'll see that in ophthalmology, you'll see it in spine. And again, what the beauty of, of Moon is that this basically just, is an ergonomic solution that gives much more control to the operating surgeon. And one of the things I like about Moon is it's not going to require a lot of data. You want to bring a robot to knee surgery, you're going to have to show that you have better outcomes. Mm-hmm. I, Moon's not going to have to prove that they have better outcomes. This is really an economic argument and an ergonomic argument in every person. By the way, there's no training here. I went and used the Moon robot out in San Carlos, California. It took me about three minutes to figure out how this thing worked. Uh, uh, and I'm no genius. So, yeah, I, they're, they're, this thing is going to be a winner. I really think so. Fantastic. And again, I'll just say, I mean, maybe he won't mind. I mean, Fred Ball was wildly enthusiastic about it. Here's the guy who invented some of the most complex robots I've ever seen. Well, that's a pretty good vote of confidence to go with. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Steve, this has been a great uh, pleasure to talk to you and thank you for the insights and uh, I look forward to, to catching up again. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Really nice to talk to you. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much to our guests for joining us, Mike Matson and Azdouar and Steve Osterley. Great discussion all around and I hope you enjoyed those conversations. Thanks to our sponsor, KNF. Thanks, of course, to you, our listeners, for joining us. You can uh, like, follow, and or subscribe this podcast on any popular podcast application. So please do that so you don't miss a future episode of this or our other Device Talks podcast. They include Intuitive Talks and Striker Talks. 
You can also subscribe to Medtronic Talks, which has its own channel on those very same podcast players. Please remember that we have a great Device Talks Tuesdays coming up on Microways, brought to you by Pulse Technologies. Go to devicetalks.com to register for that. It's Tuesday at 4 p.m. Finally, please connect with us on social media. My podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, is at Newmarker on Twitter and Chris Newmarker on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn. Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. I am on Twitter as at MedTechTom. And you can also find me on Instagram at MedTechTom. I uh, kind of rebooted that account. So uh, check out there for some thoughts and views of news and things in life. So great to connect with you wherever you are. Please do find us out there in social media. We'd love to uh, remain in touch. And we would love to see you at Device Talks West. Again, it's happening October 19th and 20th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Registration is open. Go to devicetalks.com. Join us next week. We'll have another episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. 